like to follow along, we will be looking at Acts 19, starting in verse 21. And I'll read a few of the verses. Let's pray for the Spirit's guidance. So our Lord and our God, as we open your book of life and study about the early church, I just pray that you give us wisdom and guidance and ears to hear and a heart to follow what we are taught here today, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit teaches us, Lord, and that it sticks with us. Please guard my lips. Help me to represent you properly. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 19, starting in verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Archaea and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonian, two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is a danger not only that this trade of ours will come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence. She whom all Asia and the world worships. We'll stop there. We'll cover more of them in the sermon. Now, it's been a while since we've been in the book of Acts, so I'll do a little catch-up here where we were at. Remember, Paul. this is Paul's third missionary journey. He returned to Ephesus. And he was having quite a bit of success in that ancient city. You know, up until now, he was moving about freely, and he was teaching for, there for about two years, and no hassles, no harassment. He wasn't getting stoned or beaten. He didn't have to flee in a basket. God had opened the door there for him. But remember, a lot of this was because of the political leader Gallio's decision which he decided that Christianity was just a sect of Judaism and it was protected. So people couldn't just go and beat him up like they were in the past. Which was great. Again, he was having great success. God was using them. He was using them in supernatural ways. People were taking handkerchiefs or sweaty aprons and stuff and touching other people and they were being healed. Then we had the sons of Sceva who thought they would use God's name, Jesus' name, and Paul's name to help in their exorcism. And these were the seven sons of the high priest, well-known men, in it for the money. They were not godly men. They were profiteers. They thought, well, this will bring us a little more success. So they tried using the name of Jesus and Paul in their chance to drive out these possessed people. It didn't work too well for him because they were profaning the name of our God. And remember what 
it says, I, the Lord will not let his name be profaned. They were using the name of Jesus for their own profit incorrectly to bring glory and funds to themselves. And God allowed, which I believe miraculously, this demon to come out and beat the snot out of all seven of them, strip them, and chase them into the street naked. This is a testimony of how God uses even the wicked. That'd be like if the mayor of Wapon had seven sons and the spirit came out and beat them up and sent them through Wapon naked. It'd be the talk of the town. This was the talk of Ephesus. And it resulted in the conversion of many more men. I'm just going to read that. And a man in whom was an evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to come to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued and increased and prevailed mightily. Notice how God used the wicked. The word of the Lord prevailed mightily. And the believers were giving up their idols. They were maturing. 50,000 pieces of silver. And remember the value of books back then. Everything was hand done. And here they're taking these books and firing them in the burning them. Remember I mentioned in Ephesus a couple sermons back, it had the third largest library in the world at that time. But most of the books were on the occult. So all, everything was centered on this Diana or Artemis religious belief. But what we see happening in Ephesus as these Ephesians came to faith, they were starting to mature and they recognized the idols in their lives and they were getting rid of them and it, caused, it was at great expense. You know, these little statues, little altars. You know, I've seen this when I went to Mexico in the Mayan, uh, down in the Yucatan Peninsula, the Mayans, you know, and a lot of Mexico, it was the uh, Catholic faith dominated it. But when I talked to some of these people, oh yeah, the Catholic faith was, is, is the marrying and the burying faith. But our everyday faith is the Mayan gods. And they'd show me in their houses, they'd have these little altar built and these little statues, some of stone, some of silver, of all these little idols. And that's who they prayed to every day. So that's what it was here. You know, the uh, silversmiths and all these people in Ephesus, they were making money on all this stuff. But now you have the believers throwing this stuff away and they're not going to buy anymore. So what's going to happen? It's changing the culture of Ephesus. It's the individual self-governance. The family governance is changing the culture. Because they won't buy the statues. They won't buy the silver, the wood, the stone. They won't worship Artemis. And it is affecting the culture. 
transforming it. And it says, so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This was a pagan-based city. But it was the church militant. The church saying, no, we're fighting this spiritual battle. This is a false god. We are not participating anymore. And that's a big deal. 33 temples in Asia Minor to the goddess Artemis. The hugest one was in Ephesus. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen when a culture is changed and the sins of a world, the accepted sins of a culture, are challenged. It's going to upset the apple cart. People are not going to like it. When Christians step out of the walls of the church, the non-believers, the profiteers, do not like it. It threatens their finances. It threatens their power structure. And there will be a reaction. And that's where we're at here at this point in Acts 19. The reaction to when Christianity challenges a culture. In verse 21, again, now after these things, Paul resolved into the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Archaea and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome, and having sent to Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in most of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. You know, this guy had it right. This Demetrius, he had it right. He recognized what Christianity was doing, what a church militant was doing. They were having effects in the culture and on the businesses. And what happens when people are threatened financially or their pleasurable sins are challenged? Well, they'll react. They'll react. They try to protect the, the prosperous status quo. Not all the people are prosperous, but usually the leaders, the ones that are raking in the gravy, they don't want to lose it. You know, we see the challenge of the abortion now, Planned Parenthood is squealing like a stuck pig. Why? It's a money-making deal for them. They sell the body parts. They make millions and millions. They get government money. They don't want it to end. They want to keep their profits. And any other thing, you know, it's control and profits. And the merchants and the politicians are usually in bed with each other. You know, you ever wonder why a person runs for Congress? And they get $70,000 a year, and they're, after six years, they come out and they're multimillionaires? I mean, I do math, but I'm not that good to figure out how to make that into that. But, you know, it's, it's, they're rubbing shoulders. 
And what else do they do? They want to suppress the truth. A lie will only stand when the truth is suppressed. And that's what they want. And they say, and there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Notice these guys are at least honest, you know. First he's worried about their money. Then he says, oh yeah, and by the way, it's going to damage our God too, you know. So you can see where their heart is. But again, this was the prevailing religion of Asia Minor at the time. We're going to look at what Pliny, the historian, writes. And Pliny, I don't know if he was Greek or Roman, but he's accepted as a very accurate historian. Not a Christian. But I know we've seen pictures of the Parthenon in Athens, that great temple there. Because it's still there today, anywhere you go. And if you go to Athens, you look up, you can see the Parthenon. It's on the highest spot. Magnificent building. Huge. The temple to Artemis in Ephesus was four times the size of the Parthenon. 127 columns, 60 feet high, all beautifully carved. Beautiful, beautiful carvings and structure. It was done by the the. Michelangelo of the day. It wasn't Michelangelo, but a guy comparable to him in skills. It was Polycles, and another one was Phidias. They worked on it. And they had the, I mean, their carvings, everything they did was fantastic. And we have to appreciate the skill that God even gives the, the pagans who use it for the wrong thing, the magnificence and their abilities that man has. But this temple took 120 years to build. Think about that, to their pagan god, 120 years. And later on in this sermon, we'll see where a meteorite hit close by. That was a sign to build a temple, a sign that Zeus cast down a, a stone from heaven. So they spent 120 years building this. And people, Plinius tells us, that people from all over the world would come to this temple to worship. And that is where the financial end came in. It was a tourist destination, and people would come in by the whether it was silver, stone, wood, carved art, you know, artifacts or statues of Artemis, plus the little altar stuff, probably the candles and everything to put around it when they and leave and say, "Oh, we got this," you know, at Ephesus where the big temple is. It was a big thing. It was a big thing. But you know what? Ephesus is a city that is almost completely restored. It's one of the most restored cities in the ancient world. But there's no temple there. The temple's not there. You know why? Because it took 200 years of militant Christianity Generations of Christianity and emphasis became the hub of Christianity. There was no need for the temple. The people didn't have a stomach for it. They carried the parts off as far as way to Turkey to build other temples. 
That's why we must think transgenerational. We have to be like the pagans. They, they were transgenerational in building the temple. 120 years. What we teach our children today, what we do for Jesus Christ today, what we do for his church, we may think it's insignificant. But it can last for generations if we teach it according to God's word. It can affect the church 200 years down the line. And some believe, and I believe it also, that it will even affect eternity. How our works here transform the world. And we will be doing works in heaven. But we have to think transgenerational. It's not just our life that matters. Our life is short. The older you get, the faster the years go. Anybody with gray hair will tell you that. And half the time you're walking around like you're picking up night crawlers with a sore back. So, But the thing is, what we pass on to our children and they pass on to their children is what really builds the church and it's built over time. You know, we look too narrow-minded at what our lives can do instead of what we can have others do through our teachings. And this is what they say, and there is danger not only that the trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be disposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And that's true. There were people from all over the world, the known world at that time, coming. So here's a reaction from the crowd, the peons, the ones that just kind of go along to go along. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him, or urging him not to venture into the theater. These silversmiths, they got the, the people worked up. They gathered in the amphitheater. You know, and Paul was a brave man. Sometimes I think he was a little arrogant yet, thinking he could do things that he shouldn't do. But luckily he had friends that told him, hey, don't go there, you know, that's not going to be good for you. And at least he listened. He didn't go where these raging idolaters were. You know, a good lesson for us, too. It says, in the multitude of counselors, there's great wisdom. Listen to your friends who have your best interests at heart. Even if you disagree with them, think about it. Maybe in your best interest. Just a little more history. This amphitheater is still there. Cut into the rocks, natural amphitheater. It holds 25,000 people. Now, we don't know how many people were there. Sounds like a pretty good-sized crowd. And it tells in verse 32, Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together today. Sounds like a lot of the rioters of the day. I know when they had the riots in the street, a couple of years ago, there was one brave 
reporter went in, he, he tried to ask these guys why they were there. Everyone he asked didn't have a clue, and if they tried to explain, it was incoherent. Now, I don't know if they just played the ones of the dumbest people or if they were all dumb, you know. But I just saw some video that the, they, they were supposed to have this big pro-death assembly in Austin, Texas. I mean, they Planned Parenthood, planned it and everything. And this guy, he went down there, this pro-lifer, and he was going to just protest. But when he got down there, this is supposed to be a huge event. There was about 100 people there. They had 22 speakers lined up, and 22 of them were the speakers. So he just walked around with pictures of uh, aborted babies. And then he put a baby face on his head with a sign that said, I want to live. And then, but nobody could give a decent answer why they were there. I mean, it was just silence them and just repeat the same thing they can't say. But, you know, but, and he just asked them, you know, well, are these, is this a baby in the womb or what is this? You know, and it just, but all they could do is scream and try and cover up his pictures. So it sounds here. They, they, half the time, if you keep people ignorant, now look at our school district. I read or heard on news, I forget that it was over 50%, they say, of the kids graduated high school statewide are illiterate in writing and math. Some of the schools in Milwaukee, it's 100% of the graduates. And I asked my brother-in-law as a substitute teacher, I said, yeah, I heard this. I said, but is this true? He said he won't even teach in middle school anymore. You can't discipline anybody. He said it's just, it's like a riot every day in school. And he says he thinks the number's higher. He says there's no discipline you cannot teach. But that's an ignorant people. They'll follow, they like their chance. Great is Artemis, great is Artemis, you know. Pro-choice, pro-choice, why? I don't know, it just sounds good, you know. But some of the crowd, they prompted and Paul stayed away. So here they were doing vain repetition. Vain repetition is a telltale sign of a pagan religion. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two hours, they cried that out. Because some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander motioned with his hands. He wanted to make a defense for the crowd. He wanted to explain Christianity to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians. You know, we hear that today when a, a pro-life or some Christian speaker wants to speak at a college campus. All they do is shut him down so he can't speak. You know, I've seen it when uh, they used to fly the Hare Krishnas. They'd be in uh, airports. They'd just be chanting, Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna. There's some people sitting there, hum, 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 you know. That's, their, that's the way of uh, their praise to their idols, to their false gods. You know, for two hours. But, you know, in Psalm 115, it says their idols are silver and gold and the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses, they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. Feet, but they do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. <clears throat> Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. All that trust in them. That's their prayers. Harry Krishna, Harry Krishna, that's two 
goddesses, Indian goddesses. And unfortunately, many of these Eastern practices entered the church. It's tied right into the pietistic teachings that so many people in the church believe now. And then, hide away in a monastery. We can learn from our desert fathers who hid away in the desert in their monasteries. And the early church considered them apostate because they blended with the pagan religion. But now, because we like piety and we want to have a closeness with God through prayer, we have a new way of praying. We can sit there and say, Jesus, 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 or Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, or God the Father, God the... It's vain repetition. It's using God's name in vain. It is worthless for the advancement of the church, and it's worthless for a person to grow spiritually. You want your prayer life to increase and be more sincere? Go out and be a militant Christian and confront the sins in the world and have relatives and friends hate you and curse you. Have your neighbors curse you and hate you. Better yet, stand up for Christ and have the the cell door slam behind you. I guarantee you, your prayer life will be a lot stronger and will increase. And you won't be sitting there saying, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. I know it. I've been there. When the cell door slams, you sit there, God, what's up? And your prayers are sincere. You want an active prayer life and a prayer life that's close to God? Go out and be militant. Don't sit there and repeat God's name. It's vain repetition and God hates it. And I don't care if you're using the word Jesus, Jesus, Holy Spirit, whatever. It's using God's name in vain. He says there should be no vain repetition. And that is exactly what God means. And they use other tactics again as we go on. And we see those tactics here today. They silence the truth givers. A lie will never stand. Never, never stand against the truth. You know, Alexander, he just wanted to, to share the ultimate truth with this crowd. And what they do? Great is Artemis. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians for two hours. You know, it's kind of like he was taken off of Facebook. That's what we have today. Just silence them. We don't want to hear the truth. But now feel better. The government set up their truth squad. I'm sure that's going to work out real well. But fortunately, you know, that degree, degree by Gallio, and I'm going to repeat that because this is so huge, and we have to realize we have rights as Christians in this nation right now. We have the right to stand up. And if a brother or sister is being persecuted falsely, it is our duty to stand alongside them to stand up for our rights. You know, because and I'm going to read what Gallio did. But when Gallio was proconsul of Archaea, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if, he, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of the questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. 
I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. You know, this town clerk in Ephesus knew that he was real close to allowing a riot. And in Rome, if you were one of the ruling officials and you didn't do your job, they had ways of uh, disciplining or removing you that, that you might say were permanent. This guy knew that if this crowd kept going, it was going to, going to turn to violence against the people of the way. And this guy knew his life would be on the line. So in verse 35, And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? <laughs> you know, so if you get a meteor on your land, you know, you've got to build a temple. Uh, said Zeus, of course. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in a regular assembly. For we are really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. He knew that there was a riot close coming. It was here. There was going to be violence. And they would be breaking the laws. But also, you know, it shows how ignorant these rioters were. Because he's saying, see, you know, these Pauls, you know, they're, they're not uh, teaching anything or blaspheming our goddess. Of course he was blaspheming their goddess. He was saying that these idols and everything were nothing. They're nothing. But this guy, you know, he went whatever he could to hold the peace, and the people were dumb enough to believe him then. But they did. They broke it up. But it shows many people just go along to go along, are ignorant. And if you challenge them with the truth, they cannot give you an answer. And usually they get mad and swear at you. Some of them will listen and think, though, and, comp and contemplate what we teach them. That's why we have to keep trying. We must keep proclaiming the truth. And that is what we, we learn from this. If we live out our lives as believers, teach our children, and know that we're in it for the long haul, and that there will be conflict, and when the laws of a nation are challenged and changed, especially wicked laws, there will be riots. That's why I am so pleased that I am seeing these wicked come out and just unveil themselves and just scream. And they're even saying it's against Christianity. We do not want to have a God. We don't, do not want to bow to a God. They're taking the gloves off. They're exposing themselves. And any believer, and this is, I'm going to kick some believers in the knee. We have a political party that thinks child killing is a right, and it should be protected at all parts and at all times. 
And I've confronted people who vote for him. And they say, oh, they don't stand for that. They don't stand for that. Well, duh, here they do stand for it. They're all in it wholeheartedly. Proverbs tell us those who justify the wicked and those who punish the innocent are both alike. They are an abomination to our God. Justifying the wicked. Voting for people who justify abortion, I would say they're wicked. Take God's word. We must use discernment in who we support and who we agree with. But also, we may not have people of perfection. We may have believer, or people who aren't believers, but they're doing good things. God's word says he uses the wicked to bring about his causes as well, just like he used Gallio. You can't say just because somebody's not a Christian, I'm never going to vote for him. If they're doing godly things and godly laws and they're better than the other guy, I don't see a problem with that. Now I am getting political. We have to. Our nation is at stake. These riots are a good thing. It's a matter of whether we will stand and be the church militant. We will never be the church triumphant until we are the church militant. It won't happen. If we sit pietistically in our pews and think that the culture is going to change for the better, we're wrong. And what are we leaving for the next generation but a harder battle to fight where they're fighting against a more entrenched enemy? Our enemy is on the run right now. You can tell by the way they're squealing. The Christians must stand up. We must pray to God for wisdom and discernment. But we must be the church militant. And we must look transgenerationally that what we teach our children and our children's children matters for the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, as we study the book of Acts, I just pray that you teach us to be the church militant, which merely means we are fighting spiritual battles. We are proclaiming God's truth in the public affairs of men. And whenever the truth, divine truth, is proclaimed, there will be resistance because we are fighting a spiritual battle against Satan and his minions. And right now that battle rages for the innocents, the millions of babies who are killed every year. So the wicked will want to protect their child sacrifices. It's been known through history when the wicked rule child sacrifice is prevalent. Lord, teach us to be believers that will stand up, get kicked around, get spit on, be hated, because that will bring love from you. Teach us to be such believers. Amen. Uh, if the deacons would come forward, we'll take an offering. It will be for the building fund.